Hey, good. Hello, I'm, Zach. Do you do you I, guys do you guys record this with video? We don't know. No, we usually about most of the time not. It's just because the audio doesn't turn out as good if you use a video. It kind of eats up the bandwidth, and so we yeah. can on YouTube, but I, I don't know. I think most people just listen to it, so we decided just kind of mostly audio it. But uh, you guys can yeah, see. Yeah, no, that's I'm fine. I just did. Can you guys see? Can you see me? I'm glowing in here. I'm sitting in a room with a sun, <laughs> and it's like I'm like it looks like I'm glowing, like I'm an alien, and it's like and you're, I'm hot. You're positively <laughs> angelic. Yeah, there'll be a meme made about that one if we do put up a video, I'm sure. Really, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I literally it's like I don't know, it must be 100 degrees here, but that's okay. I'll tough it out. I'll tough it out for 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 getting this information out. Georgia, welcome for coming on. Hey, we want to talk. You know, uh, Zach's recording right now, so we just record this kind of silliness at the beginning. But Zach just got done running the Western States, uh, 100 mile, 100, 100 is it 100 miles exactly? 100.2 or whatever it ends up being, but. Uh, so Zach ran with some of the best runners in the world and finished 11th, just barely missed that top 10 slot, which, wow. is, which is an improvement over what you did your first race. I think you were your 14th, your very first time you did it, right, Zach? Yeah, yeah, that race was actually my first 100-miler ever, so it was quite a learning experience that time around. And, you know, actually this time was a pretty big learning experience as well because uh, I've, I've seen that race now on the kind of polar opposites. It's kind of known for being really hot there or at least decently hot. And this last year was one of the hottest years on record. The other year I did it was the coldest year on record. So <laughs> it felt like a different environment. But it was like, I think it hit a, something like 106 degrees down at this one spot. And then in the canyons, it was over 100. So it's just a lot of, a lot of logistics and stuff. But Yeah, and I, th I think the one thing that's interesting is because you are, you know, you've, you've got a world record for the 12-hour run on a flat track. And I mm -hmm. think there's a, there's a difference between trail running and flat running and so that's you're kind of outside your specialty but still the place among some of the, the very best in the world basically the best in the world were there and you know it's a very respectful finish and so that's that's awesome congratulations man that's great congratulations thanks yeah now it's just time to recover and eat a lot of meat i guess <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, good for that. that's my strategy I'm, I'm always in recovery mode i'm always eating meat uh it's wonderful to have you here, and I got to tell you, I mean, I, you know, as you know, I've been kind of pushing this eat a lot of meat stuff, but I get more questions directed at me about things, and I, I tell you, I mean, I, I refer so many people over to your website, diagnosisdiet.com. You guys are listening; it's an excellent website, wonderful resources. Because I get these questions about what about red meat and cancer, and what about all this other stuff. And, and your website, and then also when we had Dave Feldman on, you know, I send him over there for the cholesterol stuff, for the cholesterol code, because and we had David, I think he was episode five or six, so if you guys want to go listen to that episode, but I send so many people, and I'm so thankful you have that up there, because otherwise i got to type all that stuff, and so i just like, here, check this website out, <laughs> Dr. E's done all this work, and so... Uh, Dr. Ede is not to be mistaken with Dr. Mike Eads, who is also a, a big sort of name in the low-carb protein world, uh, but she has a similar sound of name but a different person. And so, Joy, you're a, you're a psychiatrist, if I'm not mistaken. You practice out of uh, somewhere in, out in Maryland, and you take care of, I think, college-age kids. And I know you have a you've sort of got a sort of a focus on nutrition as it impacts mental health, but but more important, well, not more important, that's very important too, and we can talk about that, but more interestingly, you've done a just ton of nutritional research into diet, and you've got some really interesting conclusions, some, some interesting stuff that's come out, and we want to talk about that stuff. Um, one of the things that I find just, you know, sort of fascinating at the same time, it's also very, uh, it, you know, just, it just, 
it's it's this we're we draw the line on what we consider comfortable and what we don't and a lot of us are now particularly in a low carb world we're saying that you know we saturated fat cholesterol has got a bad rap you know we, we've got this epidemiology that's not very good we've got these poor studies and so now people in the low carb world will accept that they'll say yeah okay that makes sense meat is good you know high fat is good you know eat your butter eat your eggs so on and so forth and everybody's comfortable with that but as soon as you start saying wait a minute fruits and vegetables don't really have great science behind them either all of a sudden people get they get really offended by that they're really because it goes against what their mother told them it goes against what their grandmother <laughs> told them and I, and I think that's that you know we just have this cultural thing and i think you know if we went back a hundred years even not you know not much more than a hundred years ago people are like i don't know if fruits and vegetables are good but as of about a hundred years ago and it's kind of interesting you know we had gary fetke on a couple of weeks ago and we talked about the the creation of the American Dietetics Association, and that was founded by a vegetarian group. And so ever since we've had dietitians, we've started to hear vegetables and fruits are necessary. we got to include them in our diet. I just wonder if some of that influence has been on that. And I know you've done some really interesting uh, research regarding, you know, the requirements to eat fruits and vegetables. Why are we told they're good? What's the evidence based on? You know, what happens when you actually include fruits and vegetables in diet and do a study on that? So if you don't mind talking about this, because this is one of the most controversial topics, it's something I get criticized on all the time for saying that the evidence is not that great. What you've looked at that? What is the, Tell me what is the evidence that fruits and vegetables are great? They need to be in our diet, and what is actually, you know, really there? Well, uh, first of all, thanks a lot for inviting me on. It's it's great to talk to you both, and thanks a lot for sending so many people to my website. Um, I hope it's helpful. And uh, yeah, I, for whatever reason, I'm fascinated by the nutritional differences between plant and animal foods. And so I think a lot about it. I write a lot about it. And one of the things I did uh, a few years ago when I gave my first talk at the Ancestral Health Symposium in uh, 2012 about you know questioning the, the science behind whether or not plant foods are required in the human diet, um, is I did this kind of thought experiment where I went on to PubMed, which is the you know scientific search engine looking for journal articles to find out uh, what the evidence was uh, supporting whether or not we should have plant foods in our diet. And so I, I called this my great PubMed vegetable hunt. And I did this, um, you know, I just, I basically just typed into PubMed vegetables and health, human clinical trials, English language. And, and it was just really fascinating how little there were was there because most most of the articles that you find are articles trying to uh, help people eat more fruits and vegetables. They assume that they're good for us, and so most of the research is about how to get more of them into people's diets. So, I, and I redid this, updated this hunt um, just uh, last year, 2017. So, just to give you some interesting numbers, uh, in 2017, I found 1,281 articles if you type in those same search terms. And then I voted most of them off the island, 1,237 of them, because they were either epidemiological studies, you know, questionnaire-based that couldn't, couldn't speak to cause and effect relationships between food and health. Um, I, voted, I voted off the island articles that compared one vegetable to another, um, or studies of plant extracts, um, or articles that were irrelevant, or were just looking at biomarkers. And so um, what I was left was with 44 studies, and then I actually looked at those studies. I read the abstracts and then skimmed through the articles to find out what these actual 
journal articles could tell us about vegetables and health. And what I discovered was out of those 44, only seven of them came up with results that suggested that uh, vegetables were beneficial. And the rest of them, uh, so it was a one neutral, four mixed, 39 were left, seven were positive, meaning maybe, you know, suggesting maybe a positive benefit, and 32 were actually negative, meaning that the researchers were looking for a positive health benefit from vegetables, and they did not find it. So that's fascinating. Um, when you look at the actual clinical trials and just leave out the questionnaire-based epidemiology. So I just found that fascinating. And uh, to me, it stands to reason, because if you look at what's in vegetables, it's hard to make an argument for eating them. So anyway, that's maybe a longer answer than you'd want it. But <laughs> no, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a great answer to look at how you do that. And I agree, you know, when, we, when we, we base so much of our nutritional recommendations based on epidemiology, and it is so incredibly, you know, difficult to, to make any big suggest, you know, any big uh, decisions based on that, just because there's so much room for confounding in, in an epidemiologic study, you know, it's, there's so many other variables going on there. So I, I agree that you just, you get rid of that thing. But it's very interesting to see that, you know, of, of only 44 or so that, that actually test what you actually want to know, does a vegetable in the diet, not some isolated plant count, because, you know, we, we constantly hear, you know, people like Rhonda Patrick saying, well, sulforaphane, you know, in isolation helps this and helps that. And again, we're not eating plant compounds. We're not eating, you know, isolated chemicals typically in the diet. And so people, they, they get in that and they assume that because one compound has a positive effect on one aspect of health, it doesn't talk about the whole nature of health, but just one aspect of health, that we should eat that entire plant that has probably 100 or 200 compounds in there, most of which we don't know what what they do. And so when you actually test a whole food and you come up with a big fat goose egg, you know, basically <laughs> nothing works. You got to question, well, wait a minute, what's really going on there? So I think that's fascinating. Um, and a lot of people will, will you know, they, they, they get upset by that. And I think it's just, you know, if you try to be, you know, objective and, and take the emotion out of this. And, and like I said, there's a lot of people that there's cultural ties and why they eat, eat the way they do. And they don't just really look at what's what's actually in the food, what's going on. Let me, because um, I, I, we can, well, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about with that. But I, I want to get over another big topic because I want to hit these at the beginning and make sure we cover them. Another thing, and this is, uh, you know, for people that haven't seen that, uh, Dr. Reed wrote a, wrote a wonderful article on our on our website called uh, Who Says Meat Causes Cancer or something along that line. And, it, and again, it was the World Health Organization in, I think, late 2015 declared red meat a type two carcinogen processed meats to tarp one carcinogen. And again, you did the same thing. You did a thorough lit literature search and you, you looked at the evidence which they based it upon and you found out that, you know, your conclusion was that they just made a political statement. And can you kind of go over that real quick? Because I get so many questions again. This is one of the top reasons I get people refer to your website is about the, uh, uh, the red meat and colon cancer thing. Uh, sure. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite questions, too. So when the World Health Organization released its uh, two-page report, I think it was in 2015, you know, proclaiming to the entire world that, you know, red meat probably causes cancer, um, it it really, uh, it, it prompted me to look into the science behind the report. 
And what I did was I looked at every reference, and there weren't that many. I think there were maybe, there were less than two dozen references for that original two-page report. And so the vast majority of the science, <clears throat> uh, in quotes, that they used to support their arguments was epidemiological science. Um, the, uh, uh, let's see if I can find the, I'm just looking this up for you so I can give you the numbers. So they looked at more than 800 epidemiological studies uh, having to do with all different types of cancer and meat. And they chose out of those more than 800, 29 studies that they viewed as informative about the connection between unprocessed red meat and colorectal cancer. They didn't include much, if any, information about uh, other types of cancer, because I guess the information isn't that strong. So they felt the information was strongest about colon cancer. So that that's what they chose to look at. So out of those 29 epidemiological studies, half of them found a suggested positive association between red meat and colon cancer, meaning that perhaps red meat was associated with an increased risk, and the other half did not. So really, they're a wash. Uh, and so that alone is kind of fascinating. Um, and then they included um, they included just a handful of experimental studies, clinical studies in animals and humans. There were six uh, experimental studies cited in their report. And uh, so, and when you look at just unprocessed red meat, I, mean, I really don't, I'm not saying that processed meat is necessarily bad for people, but I, I really, I prefer to spend my time defending whole foods, you know, unprocessed foods. And so, but even if you look at the processed meat studies, you don't find anything really to hang your hat on. But if you're looking at, at red meat, unprocessed red meat, um, and you look at it in animals and humans, you don't find any evidence in these experimental studies. So first of all, they looked at these six studies, they included these six studies, but there were lots of studies that they didn't include for whatever reason. And some of these studies were listed within the first pages of the experimental studies that they chose to cite. So I don't know, it's definitely some evidence of cherry picking there, why they would include the positive studies and not the negative. But in any case, they they looked at all of these studies, uh, these experimental studies, uh, processed meat and rats and red meat and rats and processed meat and red meat in humans. And the, the fascinating thing about the rat and mouse studies that they used is that in every case, they were either using animals that had been pre-injected with powerful carcinogens before they were fed any meat of any kind, um, or they were using animals that were genetically bred to be at extremely high risk for cancer to begin with. And despite that, um, in these this handful of studies, none of these animals developed cancer, even though they were given <laughs> powerful carcinogens and fed uh, what they, what the WHO believes is the most dangerous food on earth, red meat or processed meat. So they see these funny little changes in their colons and maybe they're precancerous, hard to say. Uh, but uh, I don't find that very powerful evidence. It's kind of surprising actually that they, I, I was literally shocked when I found out that they pre-injected animals with carcinogens. But, um, but then in the, the human studies, there are really just um, two or three and, well, one is a repeat of the other. So there's really just two, and they're tiny little studies, and they're hopelessly complicated, and the, the methodology is really flawed. And so neither of them was ever repeated and found, you know, so if this is what they're going on, two extremely small human studies, uh, 
of red uh, of red meat in human beings that were never replicated and where the methodology if you, if you want to look at my website you can see I go into a lot of detail about these studies they just I I'm not convinced and if this is the best that they can do I, I can't imagine that there's I can't imagine there's any risk to eating red or processed meat and specifically red meat which is an ancient whole food which many animals including humans have been eating forever so it also doesn't make any sense to be looking for a connection between red meat and cancer. Yeah, I mean, and, and we're going to have Mickey Bendor on, I think, tomorrow to talk about some of the anthropologic stuff. And yeah, we as a species, we've been eating meat for several million years. I mean, it's just pretty clear, at least if you believe in evolution. But, you know, it's amazing that, you know, they're so they've got some very weak epidemiology with a, with a very low relative risk, mind you, even, even when they when they compile all that stuff, it's something like 1.18, which is ridiculously low. They've got some animal studies, which, which a large percent of them show no risk at all. A few of them show, show that there's risk. And two, human studies have never been replicated. And, that, and that's what they're basing this huge statement on, which does seem a little... Uh, odd to me, you know, and, and, and I know you called it a political statement. I, I'd have to say that there's probably more of that than, than actual evidence going on. I think that's uh, pretty fascinating. Let's circle back to um, why would it be, uh, you know, plants have compounds in them, you know, we, you know, oxalates and lectins and so on and so forth. And people have heard a lot about lectins now because Dr. Uh, his name, Dr. Gundy wrote a book about that, so people are kind of aware of that. But there's a whole bunch of little compounds inside plants. I know you've cataloged a lot of those. Can you give us just a little overview? Because some, you know, again, everybody has this this magic halo around eating fruits and vegetables. They're 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 loaded with phytonutrients that we need that that we have to have them to stay alive. If we don't have them, we're going to die. But Again, that and Ambro Hearn likes to call that a, a a term that was made up. Some people say it was a phytonutrient was a term made up to sell more soybeans, but they have just chemicals in them, some good, some bad. And, and can you talk just briefly about some of the categories of chemicals we can find and some of the common foods are found in and what kind of problems they may cause in people? Sure. Uh, so, you know, plants, because they can't growl or chase or, you know, run, uh, they don't have fangs and claws and things like that. They defend themselves with chemical weapons and, 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 and very sophisticated ones that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years. Plants have been around a lot longer than we have. Have and they they know what they're doing and they're not innocent and uh, unprotected even though they may look as though they are. So uh, the different types of compounds you can find in plants include uh, in the crucifer family, you know the broccoli, cabbage, kale family are the isothiocyanates, and in the nightshades they're glycoalkaloids and there are goitrogens which uh, are widespread in a variety of types of plants that uh, disrupt uh, thyroid. Uh, hormone activity and iodine absorption. There are oxalates in many types of plants, including spinach. And there are thiosulfates in the onion, garlic family, salicylates in all kinds of plants, and capsaicinoids and peppers. They're just a, a, just a stunning variety of, of, of chemicals. And, and one really interesting example, couple, well, well, the glycoalkaloids and nightshades, for example, they are the chemical structure of them is exactly the same as nerve gas. And so they are neurotoxins. And depending on how much of these things you absorb and how sensitive or susceptible you are to them, they can cause pain and other types of neurologic symptoms in people. The cruciferous vegetables contain this you know, famous or infamous molecule, sulforaphane, which is an isothiocyanate. And it's been used uh, by cancer researchers for years um, because, specifically because of its 
cytotoxic properties, meaning it is it can kill cells. So it can kill cancer cells and and in some cases can kill uh, healthy cells as well. So any any chemotherapy has that risk. So the cruciferous vegetable, in order to protect itself from the toxicity of the sulforaphane, it actually keeps the two components that you need to create the sulforaphane in two separate compartments within the cell because once you mix them together, they become toxic. So if the plant becomes damaged by chewing, uh, a little worm comes up to it or an insect or you chop it up on your on your uh, cutting board in the kitchen, um, those two uh, components come together and they create the sulforaphane. So I mean, I just think plant chemistry is fascinating and I, I think there's nothing wrong with exploiting plant chemicals for our purposes if you have a disease you may need to go to some you may need to go to some lengths to try to eradicate it and one of the ways that a lot of people do that is with is with drugs and many of those drugs come from plant compounds which are designed to to kill cells including cancer cells so um the, the, there are many many examples but i i it's something that i could spend the rest of my life studying i find it so interesting <laughs> Yeah, you know, that actually, I had a kind of a question about that, that I've been kind of just curious about, um, since kind of looking into some of that same stuff that you've been talking about, where there's really not any, you know, solid research that points to this, like, massive benefit for eating vegetables, certainly not in large quantities. Um, and then, you know, you come across that, that well, exactly what you just said, where they've got some benefits, but they've also got some, some potential deterrence as well. And it's, it kind of flies in the face of this whole concept of like you should eat it in a whole food setup because like you said before that's where you're going to introduce not only the good but the bad uh so i guess my question is kind of like where's the value in essentially like kind of eating a non-whole food uh plant i guess by extracting what's good and kind of using that versus just eating it as a whole and kind of getting everything uh, do you mean which is better for you to to eat the extracts or eat the whole plant? Uh, yeah, well, that would be something interesting to talk about as well. But I was just like more curious about like extracting the positive parts, so the you know the things that are like the stuff oh. that like Dr. Rhonda Patrick talks about as being like beneficial for you know all sorts of different things. Is there a way in which you could kind of just only get that from the plant and leave the rest that's potentially harmful on the side? I see. Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so, if I understand, I, I'm not I'm not as familiar with Rhonda Patrick's work as I could be. I I, I have come across it, and I know that that uh, for example, uh, sulforaphane is something that that you know she she thinks is a, a really wonderful chemical, and it, it does have wonderful properties that you may need to exploit if you have a disease and you're, that you're trying to eradicate, like cancer. Um, but sulforaphane, every cancer fighting chemical in the plant world is uh, it really is just natural chemotherapy and it and it is a double-edged sword because it has side effects it has risks there isn't there isn't such a thing as you know all positive sulforaphane um, we'd like to think that that's the case but it's not just like any form of chemotherapy it has its downsides it can damage healthy tissues so um, if you were trying to just extract the beneficial parts of plant foods, you'd really just want to be taking out and eating the vitamins, minerals, protein, and uh, fat, and uh, you know, and if you wish, carbohydrate and the nutrients. You really just want to be trying to get out the nutrients. Um, that's 
when plants do contain nutrients, the problem is they also contain anti-nutrients and chemical defense uh, uh, compounds. So if you could extract the nutrients and leave aside the anti-nutrients like phytic acid, for example, which interferes with mineral absorption, protease inhibitors, which make it hard to, uh, you know, to digest protein, those sorts of things, and, and, and the chemical defense mechanisms, then you'd have a, all the good things from the plant and none of the bad things. Hey Jordan, I'm we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna give you a workout here. Sorry, you got, you, got, you got you got so much good information. I'm gonna try to extract as much as we can for our listeners. But hey, here's another thing. I know you wrote an article. I read I read so much of your stuff, and I, and I just love seeing it. But you wrote an article looking at antioxidants. I think you looked at something like pomegranate juice, and you had a little article about you know how people were selling pomegranate juice as this wonderful superfood full of anti not any antioxidants, and we should all be drinking a bunch of pomegranate juice. And you kind of kind of went through that critically. Could you just kind of briefly go through that again for us? Oh, oh yeah, sure. I wrote an article for Psychology Today in December called The Antioxidant Myth. And uh, one of the, I looked at a couple of different antioxidant examples, and one was, you know, the whole palm wonderful pomegranate juice antioxidants, and the other was curcumin. And, um, so uh, one of my favorite things to talk about is, the, is palm wonderful because uh, they for a very this very expensive sexy bottle of pomegranate juice um, is you know they claim that it's packed with I think they say something like powerful cancer fighting ani- free radical annihilating antioxidants or some some such uh, marketing sentence. So in any case, it's true that it it does have antioxidants in it, um, two different types. Um, but the problem is those antioxidants um, only work in test tubes. They do not work in the human body. We absorb vir- virtually none of these antioxidants. Um, so, uh, and there's plenty of science on that, and I've got the references right in the Psychology Today article. So uh, these elagitanins and anthocyanins, which are in Palm Wonderful, don't get absorbed less than two one-thousandth of the anthocyanins are, are absorbed, and the elagitanins are tr- transformed into something else before we can even try to absorb them. So what you're actually getting from that bottle of pomegranate juice is 32 grams of sugar, which Hmm. is a really powerful promoter of oxidation. What you're getting is the opposite of what you are thinking you're buying. Uh, Sugar is, uh, we're always told, you know, (laughs) just as a psychiatrist, I find this fascinating. We want to solve problems by adding things to our diet. We don't want to be told to take things away. It just feels bad. So we're told, oh, we have, we're tilted too far towards oxidation. We should eat more antioxidants. Well, why are we tilted so far towards oxidation in the first place? It's because we're eating too much sugar. So, but nobody wants to be told that. That doesn't make anybody any money to say, oh, take the sugar out of your diet. Who's going to make money telling you that? I'd rather sell you a beautiful bottle of juice. Yeah, that, so. that's interesting, and like it, this came up in one of our other episodes. I think it's episode eight with Owen Franks, and we were talking about kind of the psychology of of food, and you see it in the, the ketogenic world as well, where um, it, people kind of want to sub one thing in for what was there before. So we were talking about that, and, and Owen Franks is is carnivore, at least he was when we interviewed him, and seemed to be doing quite well with it. Uh, but his thought was like, you know, when he first kind of started a ketogenic diet, it was like, well, I'm going to take out the starchy potatoes, but I need to replace it with something. So I'm going to put a heap of broccoli and spinach there instead. <laughs> so it's like we're just we're removing one thing and putting something else in there because it seems like it fits the protocol. 
wherein I guess, you know, really, according to the, the research that is meaningful, you could just remove it altogether. But like you said, the, the psychology behind that is, is a tough one to sell people. They don't want to be having things taken away. They only want to be, be getting more or at least the same. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, it's a hard sell to tell people to, you know, to, to take things away. And as, as you know, it can be really powerful. It really works to take things away. It really works. Um, adding things, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a losing strategy. So it gets really frustrating for people. A lot of people think they're doing the right thing. They're having their berry smoothie every morning and they're eating their oatmeal and they're, you know, they're adding all these uh, vitamins and supplements and all kinds of things. And they're, they're still not feeling good and they don't know why. Um, so if they understood, I think if more people understood how powerful it was to do some elimination experiments for themselves, I, I think a lot of people would feel a lot better and, and feel like more empowered. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that, that's so true. I mean, we have this huge supplement industry, which is, you know, in the billions of dollars and, and, you know, I, I, cause I took supplements, you know, years ago and, and, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, did they actually do anything for me? And, and I honestly have to say, I cannot tell any difference. You know, but, but when I went on this sort of crazy restrictive diet, I noticed a huge difference. It wasn't like some subtle 1%, maybe I'm 1% better. It was it was just like, you know, slap yourself upside the head. Yes, there's a huge difference there. And so I think that's that that that's more than anybody. When you buy some supplement and you like you try to convince yourself that there's a difference and there's really no difference. And I think there's a shame so many people spend money on that. You kind of touched on curcumin, which is a which is one of the active ingredients found in turmeric. Would you elaborate on that? Because there's so many people that are that are, you know, chugging turmeric by the seems like the, the, the gallon every day now for some reason. What 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 is your thought on turmeric? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I looked into that for that same article in Psychology Today, and uh, the um, I, I, I first I looked to see like what people are paying for this. So if you you go to Whole Foods, for example, um, a four ounce shot of turmeric costs you four dollars. And um, but when I looked at the curcumin chemistry, the the journal articles about curcumin, um, you, it doesn't make it into your bloodstream. You, you, we just do not absorb curcumin. So you have to do all kinds of special things to it to get it into your body. And one might ask, well, maybe the human body is intelligent and maybe it's rejecting this stuff for a reason. Maybe we don't need it. <laughs> maybe we don't want it uh, you know, circulating in the bloodstream. But so in order to get it into your system, you have to actually buy special supplements that have been manipulated uh, to be absorbed. So um, there's, there's just, it's a complete waste of money to think that uh, turmeric shots are going to get you anything. It's just an expensive shot of, I don't know, wishful thinking, I guess. So it doesn't, uh, turmeric does not work. Curcumin does not work unless you manipulate it. You're going to make a lot of people just fairly upset with that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> is, that, is that the same for like just the, the, the spice as well then, I'm assuming, since it's probably even less pro or less broken down at that point? Yeah, the, the whole food um, is, uh, you know, the, the turmeric that is in the natural whole spice turmeric, uh, we don't absorb it. So if you like turmeric and you, like, you enjoy the taste of turmeric, great. Um, and, you know, you, it, it adds flavor to food. And if you enjoy it and it doesn't bother you, great. But don't think that you're getting any special antioxidant benefit from it. Interesting. Yeah, that's Let's, the other question I kind of had in, in the world of vegetables, too, was, uh, you know, essentially the way I look at vegetables is there's kind of like, two types there's vegetables that carry a, a caloric value or an energy and there's ones that essentially are so small they probably don't even move the needle on your energy intake so is there is there a difference in the way 
like you view vegetables that have an energy source versus kind of like a negligible energy source since it would almost in my th my thought process here is like if it's got an energy source like a root vegetable there may be some benefit for it outside of just trying to absorb some of these tiny like phytonutrients or micronutrients oh yeah sure no that's a that's a really good question too it's it's, it's a great conversation thanks you guys um so uh it's the way i think about plants is i i kind of put myself in plants position i guess psychiatrists like to do that so kind of get inside the plant's head and say okay you know if i'm a plant you know what what parts of me would i like other people to eat and what parts do i want to protect mm -hmm. as a plant i you know like any self-respecting biological creature i want to reproduce i want to eat i want to thrive uh, to reproduce so i need seeds are the are the offspring and we want to protect the seeds so the seeds are even though they they do the seeds which are grains beans nuts and seeds are all seeds they all, all if you cut them in half they all have a little plant embryo inside those seeds are the most heavily defended part of the plant they also can be depending on who you look at it the most nutritious because they contain everything that the baby plant needs to grow including most of the protein of the plant is found in the seeds and that's why people who choose a plant-based diet must rely on seed foods for their protein. So the seed, but they're heavily defended with lectins and phytic acid and protease inhibitors and all kinds of other things. So that's the part of the plant that if I were, if I were making recommendations, which I, you know, I like to give information and let people make their own decisions, but I would avoid those foods, <laughs> especially the, the grains and the legumes. Um, so, but if I'm a plant and I, I, I need a, I can't move, I need to be able to spread those seeds and, you know, populate the earth and try to take over the planet, which is what every creature is trying to do. And I might need some help and I might need an animal or, uh, or a bird or, well, I guess birds are animals. I might need an animal to help me disperse the seeds. And so I might create fruits that are palatable and appealing and, uh, to that animal that are minimally toxic or perhaps not toxic at all. And so that's where fruits come in. So a fruit is designed to be appealing and non-toxic to the animal that will best disperse it. So fruits are the safest in many cases. I mean, there are definitely examples of poisonous fruits. But by and large, the, quote, edible fruits are the least damaging to us, or potentially damaging, and the seeds are the most. And then everything else, uh, roots, um, stems, stalks, etc., varies. But the, the root vegetables, some of them when raw are toxic and some of them uh, are not. So it, it depends on the, the class of plant. So sweet potato one is one story. Cassava is another. So you got to cook cassava or it's poisonous. So it, 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 different parts of the plant can have, like you said, like the fruits have, have, have carbohydrates, which can be helpful if you, if, you, if you need carbohydrate. Roots can also be helpful if you need carbohydrate, but you got to choose your roots carefully because some are not safe to eat. If it, I don't know if answer your question. Oh, you know, and then some. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Jordan, sure. let me. I'm, I'm going to switch topics just again. I'm going to keep doing this. Cause let's talk about TMAO. That's something oh. that worked uh, recently. That how bad? Because if you eat meat, your TMAO is going to go up and it's going to kill you. And I know you've written about that as well. So could you briefly discuss? The, the relative risk and or lack of risk associated with having TMAO levels in our body and, and what's really going on with TMAO. Hey, Zach, do you hear we got a new sponsor? I heard ButcherBox is going to sponsor this show. Can you tell us a little bit about that deal? Yeah, yeah. We're really excited to bring on ButcherBox as one of our first sponsors for the HBO podcast. So 
we are uh, hoping to get some of the listeners interested in some of their high quality products over at butcherbox.com. And you can actually get a bit of a discount if you put in HPO in your, in your, your order uh, to, to get some of their good products. They've got all kinds of meat and uh, it's definitely Dr. Sean Baker approved. Yeah, so HBO as in Human Performance Outliers, Hotel Papa Oscar for you military guys. Yeah, I've been doing Butcher Box for about two years now. Uh, for you guys who are looking for grass-finished, antibiotic-free, and hormone-free beef, this comes from Australia. It's, qual- it's good quality stuff. It is consistent. I found it to be very consistent every time you can customize your order. I tend to lean heavily toward the ribeyes. The ground beef is excellent. Some of the uh, Denver steaks are good. Some of the... Uh, uh, New York strips are very nice, so that's a, that's a good option for you guys that are searching for a reliable, consistent, uh, reasonably pl- priced uh, grass-finished alternative. So I fully support ButcherBox, and I hope you guys do too. Cool. Yep. Yeah. If you order from them, you'll be supporting HPO Podcast as well as uh, the Carnivory. So uh, thank you for all your help. Oh my gosh. Um, so there was this uh, prominent uh, study written. Let's see. I'm looking it up here. 2013. Um, claiming that L-carnitine, which is a nutrient in red meat, um, causes heart disease. And so I and several other people um, uh, looked at this article really closely and wrote about it. And I I could not believe how convoluted this study was. You have to jump through all kinds of hoops to try, (laughs) it's unbelievable, to try to uh, pin the tail on this donkey it's unbelievable what they did so it's all outlined in this article i wrote on my website a few years ago called does carnitine from red meat cause heart disease and it is so complicated that i don't even think i can summarize it um but uh it it basically um suggests that because it, it basically says that this villainous ingredient in red meat um eventually turns into something called TMAO in the body, um, which uh, which is... So the carnitine, uh, most of the carnitine that's... Um, uh, let me see, I'm just kind of reading over my article to remind myself. So we have, we have in our bodies an enzyme that turns, uh, that turns a carnitine, uh, again, it's very complicated, it turns the carnitine into TMAO. So why would our bodies go out of its way, to, out of their ways to do that if it's going to be toxic? But in any case, the um, uh, carnitine is not the only thing that our bacteria in our in our digestive system can turn into TMAO. Another food molecule called choline can also be turned into TMAO. And choline is not just found in meat; it's found in egg yolks and wheat germ and nuts and Brussels sprouts and broccoli. So, um, and, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, we also generate a huge amount of TMAO from fish. We don't even need bacteria in our gut to turn TMAO, to, to, to create TMAO from fish. Fish naturally contain TMAO, not carnitine, but actual TMAO. And uh, some fish is really extremely high in TMAO. So why I pick on red meat when seafood, if, if you're worried about TMAO, seafood is your monster so it's just fascinating um that you know the authors um you know would again it's very it's cherry picking where they're trying so hard to find what is it in red meat that could be so dangerous that they really they really go through these crazy 
these 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 crazy convolutions. So they basically say, okay, people with heart disease tend to have higher TMAO levels. Vegans and vegetarians seem to have lower TMAO levels. Vegans and vegetarians produce less TMAO after they eat a steak. Vegans and vegetarians have different kinds of bacteria than we do, than than non-vegetarians do. So they 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 go through this whole argument, and they're they're the the last leap is that TMAO, the reason they think that TMAO is bad is that it interferes with reverse cholesterol transport in genetically. So that's their argument, that if you eat foods that contain choline or TMAO itself from fish, that um, it's going to get into your bloodstream and it's going to, and it's going to increase your cholesterol levels. And, of course, the three of us, I'm sure, don't, believe that cholesterol is bad for us um but uh i i just couldn't find i couldn't find anything in this article to be concerned about it it was it took days and days to read this thing and it was a complete waste of time (laughs) hey let me ask you uh you just got were you now weren't you just in switzerland with that big uh big nutrition meeting that went down uh last week i think Yes, it was fascinating. It was and wonderful. I, yeah, there were some some fairly prominent names in the world of nutrition there. One, I thought one statement that was that struck me as pretty interesting is you know when they when they asked Zoe Harkum what evidence she believes, and she said she basically believes non findings more than findings. Do you, do you remember what I was? Do you remember when she said that, or do you, can you comment on that at all? Yeah. Yeah, I certainly do. I, the, um, it was it was a brilliant statement. She's she's a brilliant person um and you know one of my intellectual heroes and uh, it was the first time i got to meet her in person so it was just wonderful but she uh, she said that and it just so rang true for me um the if you're if you're trying to understand uh what might be causing a disease um you might you might say oh let's let's say we believe that red meat causes heart disease and you try and try and try to find out that red meat causes heart disease and you you don't really find much of anything you try but you don't what if you found what if what about all of the examples in the world around you of red meat not causing heart disease so you know people who eat high red meat diets you know cultural history various groups of people if you if you see a negative that should disprove your hypothesis if you if you think that red meat is the scourge of all time then people who eat a lot of it um, that you should see more you should see more disease in those populations so um, the the I think it's really really important that um, we take into consideration not just what we find but what we don't see and what we don't see is really I think uh, can be much more powerful. So um, I don't know if I'm explaining that as well as she would have, but um, but it, it, that's the way I think about it anyway. Yeah, I think I think if you look to find something and, and and you actually don't find anything there, then you have to you have to alter your hypothesis instead of keep continuing looking to to, to back up what you believe. And I think that's what we have. We have this sort of innate belief that you know red meat is the evil of, of all time and we have to find out what's causing that and everything that, that sort of turns out not to be true they have to keep looking for something else and it, it kind of gets uh it's almost exhausting to see it all the time you know and as you know i have a lot of connection with this big carnivore community and all, and all i'm seeing is people getting healthier and I, you know and again it's in its infancy you know there'll have to be a lot more science that comes out behind this but for now it it, it certainly is it, it's kind of interesting to see that um, let me um, 
go to a topic that I know you you probably want to talk about is mental health and diet mm. because that, that's what your you know that's where your training is and that's what you see and I think we so underestimate mental health you know as as just a disease it's often you know surrounded in in uh, shame and you know people are embarrassed to talk about it but it's just as much a physiologic process as any other as arthritis is as heart disease or anything else is and I think it responds to physiology that's like the rest of our body. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of your work with, with uh, nutrition and health and just your general thoughts on mental health? Oh, yeah, your mental health, obviously, as a psychiatrist, I think about it all the time. And and uh, I think in, in some ways it's more important than physical health because it if you don't have good mental health, then it really um, it corrodes your sense of self, You know, your confidence, your ability to function, your ability to interact with other people. Um, it really just goes to sort of the core of who you are. So, and, and, and people who don't have good mental health, they often feel responsible for it. They feel that there's something that they're doing wrong and other people feel the same way about it. They say, well, you know, they're, 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 it's a character flaw or you're not working hard enough or trying hard enough. And so, um, you know, it goes to the essence of, of our humanity. So I think that um, it's incredibly important. And and of course, the brain is an organ like any other organ. And if it's not healthy, then you're not healthy as on the whole and and it suggests that there may be something uh that could be improved upon in terms of you know how you're feeding yourself you know the one, one of the things i like to say is that the most powerful way to change your brain chemistry is through food because that's where brain chemistry comes from in the first place where else would it come from so uh i mean medicines can be helpful and i do prescribe them and i i'm not saying that that's that that that's you know may not be necessary for some people but you know, why not, unless you're in a crisis, like why not start by just getting yourself healthier and seeing if you can get your brain um, to function at its best, whatever that your personal best is. And most people have, do not think about food and the brain. Most people don't think about diet. They think about diet and heart disease or obesity or diabetes, even cancer, but they don't really think about depression or anxiety, so mood swings. So, and, and luckily... Um, Mother Nature's, you know, principles apply. The, the same dietary principles apply to brain health as to every other um, uh, organ in the body. Luckily, we don't have to eat a different diet for the brain than for the heart and for the liver and for the kidneys and the muscles. It's it, we One diet uh, works for everything. So I'm not saying that everybody need, should eat the same diet. I'm just saying the same principles apply. You know, uh, making sure that your... Um, insulin levels are under control in a normal range and not not unstable. Your blood sugar, um, making sure you're not uh, eating a lot of foods that promote inflammation, like seed oils, canola, sunflower oil. Um, you know, keeping the sugar out of your diet. All these kinds of things. Um, making sure you're getting some animal foods because that's the the best way to get all the nutrients your brain needs. So the, again, the same principles apply, but. I think the biggest challenge for people with mental health issues is to be convinced of that connection because when you're not feeling well emotionally, it's hard to make any kind of change. It, the, you know, there's often a lack of motivation and energy and um, sort of internal resources. And so it can take more support. It can take more education, it can take more time. But I think that, I mean, more and more stories are coming out um, of people uh, improving their mental health through dietary changes. And the more people 
the more people talk about it, this is the other thing is that, you know, there's a huge stigma still, unfortunately, associated with mental health conditions. And a lot of people who have seen improvements may not tell other people about them because there's still a lot of shame involved in having had mental health issues even in the past. But I think that's changing and more people are coming forward and explaining how different dietary changes have helped them. So um, one of my favorite things to do is, is to try to help people understand that really powerful connection. What This is kind of interesting because we had, uh, I'm sure you, you know Amber O'Hearn, you know, we had her on episode, I don't know, six or seven or something like that. And she, you know, she obviously had uh, bipolar disorder with significant episodes of depression in there. And she obviously changed that by changing her diet. But one of the things she was interested in by going to this conference in Hungary is talking about does, you know, things like leaky gut or autoimmune issues, can that contribute to depression? Do you see any potential mechanism where depression or some of these mental health diseases could potentially be an autoimmune uh, issue in disguise, perhaps? And does gut problems potentially lead to that? Is there any evidence that might suggest that? The, the, I haven't looked as closely at, at that as I would like to. That's one of the things I need to learn more about. What I do know from what I have looked at, I've looked at quite a bit of it, but not, not to my satisfaction yet, so I w- wouldn't be able to give you the kind of answer that I wish I could. Um, maybe in the near future, I will. But um, when I have looked, what I've seen is a lot of associations between um, poor gut health and poor mental health, and I certainly see that in my clinical work as well. But most of the people that I work with who have mental health issues also have physical health issues and often gut-related issues, um, chronic pain, um, IBS, fatigue, um, and, and sometimes even autoimmune conditions. So um, again, the brain is a part of the body. And uh, lots of, in any case, I do think it's possible. I haven't yet come across any hard evidence of that. Um, and some sometimes I see in the literature um, people, not Amber. Amber is a great friend and, a, and also a very, very careful researcher. But sometimes I read papers about um, making some leaps about things like gluten and mental health, for example, or uh, how if something destroys the gut barrier, it may also be destroying the blood-brain barrier. And while a lot of that is theoretically true, there's not a lot of hard evidence that I've come across yet. But again, this is something I want to delve into more deeply um, in my research in the coming months. So I think potentially, yes, but I don't know of any hard evidence of it. I don't know if Amber shared anything more with you, though. Yeah, she just she just talked about, you know, just pondered that, you know, because of the, the she learned so much about gut permeability being changed by switching diets. And so, uh, again, it's 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 stuff we, we we obviously need to research down the road. Let me ask you, you know, as you see patients uh, that you know come to you for whatever reason, for whatever uh, psychiatric reason, whether it's depression or anxiety, when you try to, I mean, I assume you you at least attempt to to make nutritional changes. What sort of nutritional changes do you? What are your kind of go to things that you that you try to try to do to to help if you do so? Oh yeah, no. With with everybody, it's always one of the things that I that I bring up and educate about and and try to incorporate. If you know, and and not everybody's interested in this. I always I always educate about it, but then whether or not the person is interested and wants to follow through is another story. So there are definitely many people who come to me for medication and do not want to talk about nutrition. I still educate about it. And the other thing I do with everybody 
is I um, I start by getting some blood tests and testing specifically for nutrient deficiencies as well as insulin resistance, even in you know my young college students. And insulin resistance, as you know, it's kind of public health I mean, enemy number one. And uh, lots of my college students have insulin resistance already, even at 18, 19 years old. And I explain to them, I show them the numbers and, and show them their lab tests. And it's really motivating to show them where they are on that insulin resistance spectrum and to say, look, this is damaging your brain. It, you know, insulin resistance um, can contribute to symptoms of depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and is strongly, uh, there's a lot of strong science showing the connection between um, insulin resistance and the development of Alzheimer's disease over decades. And so um, if the most powerful thing that I think anybody can do for their mental health is get a handle, get tested for insulin resistance and get a handle on it if you've got it and prevent it if you don't have it yet by, you know, again, so avoiding all the refined carbohydrates and the refined seed oils, all the junk foods, processed foods, um, and eating whole foods. And if you're, if you're far along in the insulin resistance spectrum and your carbohydrate metabolism is fairly damaged, you may need to eat a low carbohydrate diet. Uh, or you may need to eat a no-carbohydrate diet. So for some of my students, I start with just getting the junk food out if they can do that. And that's that's very difficult for most students to do. Um, so step one, junk food. Step two, whole foods. Step three, low-carb. Step four, maybe you want to even look at no-carb. Uh, so um, it depends on, you know, it depends on how severely damage your metabolism. So I really look at insulin resistance and I looked at new, I look at nutrient deficiencies as well. Many of my students at Smith College in Western Massachusetts are, um, they choose a vegan or vegetarian diet for compassionate reasons for the most part. And so some education about the careful supplementation um, is really important, like B12, uh, which many of them know about, but they don't usually know about the omega-3 deficiencies that are common uh, among everybody, but especially among plant-based uh, dieters. So um, educating them about algae supplements, the brain requires uh, DHA. Uh, and uh, DHA, there's no DHA in plant foods. And most of my students do not take a DHA supplement. And the ones who do are taking a DHA supplement or, or an uh, omega-3 supplement from uh, uh, you know, uh, flaxseed or chia or something, um, rather than the one they need to be taking is from algae. It's the only one that contains DHA. So those are those are the where the basics. I spend a lot of my time on really basic nutrition education, um, and and then you know individualize it from there. But that, that's what I try to teach everybody about. Yeah, I got just three three little comments. One, you talked about. Uh, 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 insulin resistance being associated with Alzheimer's disease. We're going to have Amy Berger on the show oh, uh, wow. sometime sometime in the coming future. She wrote that book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, so that'll be interesting to talk about. Um, two, insulin resistance. A lot of people don't really understand what that is. Can you describe how you test for it? Do you do a HOMO IR score, or what is your? how do you – just to tell people how to do that. And the other last part of the question is for the people that do adopt – and I think it's so uh, in, uh, sort of interesting that you pointed out that insulin resistance is a huge risk factor for mental health disease. Because I don't think most people consider that fact. So it's, it's great to hear you say that because I think it'll, it'll, it'll teach a lot of people. But for the people that you do get to modify their diet, have you noted success or positive improvements in their mental health? Yes. Uh, so, I, well, first, just to say that insulin resistance 
causes a huge risk factor for mental health problems, and um, there's no question about that. The, the, the science is early, but it's, it's really powerful. So um, there are lots of different ways to test for insulin resistance. As you know, there isn't one single test, unfortunately. It would be great if we had one single test for insulin resistance. But um, the, the things that I do with my college students that I can get easily covered by insurance are really simple tests. So I get a fasting insulin level, I get a fasting blood sugar level, I get fasting triglycerides, HDL. Um, I uh, Most of my students, if they will allow it, I, I will also ask them to, you know, get weighed at the, you know, um, downstairs at the nurse's station. Um, and, you know, these kinds of things, you know, as you know, a triglyceride HDL ratio can be really, really helpful. Um, the fasting insulin level can be helpful. Um, the fasting blood glucose, as you know, is usually normal. And it's usually normal um, because you're pumping out more insulin um, to be able to keep your blood glucose in a normal range until you've got type 2 diabetes, and after which point, you know, it's, it's a, little, a little far along the line. But in any case, insulin resistance, what, the way I think about what it is, is that from eating too many of the wrong foods too often, you're taxing your insulin system and asking your pancreas to secrete high levels of insulin to deal with all the extra sugar that you're eating that we're not designed to handle. So, and for most people, uh, you know, sugar, flour, fruit juice, uh, cereals, most people are eating those things three, four, five, six times a day. So they're on this blood sugar insulin roller coaster and tons of insulin needs to be pumped out, manage. And the system just breaks down and, you know, the receptors become damaged, they downregulate and doesn't work properly and when that happens your carbohydrate metabolism uh, is you know is really broken and so um, the problem is you know in the body that can lead to diabetes and other kinds of health problems once the insulin doesn't work as well to you know keep your blood sugar in a normal range but in the brain the the blood the blood brain barrier is what becomes insulin resistant and so your sugar glucose from the bloodstream crosses into the brain no questions asked you don't need insulin to get glucose into your brain. And that's special. Most organs don't function that way. But glucose goes in. And the brain needs a lot of glucose. So it waltzes in. It's the insulin that has a harder and harder time crossing. And that's a problem because the brain cannot turn that glucose into energy without insulin. So if you've got an insulin deficit in your brain from eating too much sugar, you'll have plenty of sugar. Uh, your, your brain cells will be floating, flooded with sugar. Um, but there won't be enough insulin to turn into energy and your cells can literally be swimming in glucose and starving to death at the same time. And that's what eventually causes Alzheimer's disease ultimately. So, and all kinds of other brain problems, difficulty concentrating, depression, anxiety, all kinds of uh, schizophrenia. Uh, schizophrenia is more complicated, but it's very strongly connected to insulin resistance. So um, there isn't a single brain problem I can think of that doesn't, that, that couldn't benefit from uh, from lowering those insulin levels and eating eating healthy. Yeah, that's yeah, all, that's all really uh, fascinating. You know, it's it's encouraging to hear that like you kind of take that nutrition as step one as opposed to like you know let's let's try to figure out everything that's going on here because um, I think it does clear up a lot of the muddiness in the waters. And I can I can't help but think like I, I taught middle school and high school for five years. Um, and you know, for part of that time I was teaching special education. So we'd have these meetings where, you know, we'd sit down with, you know, upwards of 10 people sometimes and just go through all these elaborate plans and strategies and environmental influencers and things that we could do to kind of help a student, 
you know, be successful. And it was rare that nutrition was ever brought up. And when it was, it was typically a lot more along the lines of the standard American diet than anything else. And, you know, I can't help but think like uh, how much resources we could we could save as, you know, educators and, um, you know, in, in any field, I guess, to you know, kind of approach things with nutrition first and then see what kind of needs to be done after that. I uh, uh, completely agree with every word you just said. <laughs> That's exactly right. I think it's always the right place to start. And why not? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? It may be the hard place to start for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, can you let me ask you another question? <laughs> there is a sort of a controversy about food addiction, some or sugar addiction, or whatever, whatever addiction we want to call it related to food. There are some people say that there's no such thing, and there's no such thing as food addiction. Do you believe that to be true, or do you feel that that's an actual diagnosis that that's your best? I'm I'm 100% convinced it's real. Uh, first of all, I have experienced it myself, and uh, you know, and many, many, many people that I've worked with over my 20 years as a psychiatrist. Um, if you talk to them about the their eating patterns and how they feel about food, particularly p women who describe themselves as having problems with binge eating, for example, which are are most of the women that I that I see, um, it, it's just it's a consequence of the types of foods that are in our diet that are causing these problems. So for the most part, so um, I absolutely believe it's real. And if you look at the, you know, the DSM five diagnostic criteria for addiction, you can check all those boxes for, for people who talk about their relationship with food, a really addictive relationship. And it's, it's not always with all foods. I think um, at least in my experience, the foods that people tend to lose control over and become uh, preoccupied with and feel bad about eating are the carbohydrates um, and dairy. So, uh, both of them for various people can be addictive. And we all know people who can eat one muffin and walk away. Uh, we also know people who can have one glass of wine and walk away, but, um, you know, everyone's different, but uh, the, the refined carbohydrates for many of us are incredibly addictive. Um, and, uh, the only thing that really helps with that is getting so and, and some of us have to go to an, a, a low carb diet not, not just get rid of the refined carbohydrates the rapidly processed ones but but some of us for some of us even eating a whole food like an apple um, is going to trigger those carbohydrate cravings um, depending on our metabolism and our you know our, our different susceptibilities so I, I'm 100% convinced yeah it's something that I have sort of observed uh, just spending time among these sort of zero carb folks and, and and kind of getting to know their stories and seeing and, and one of the things that's striking to me is a lot of people will say that you know by completely eliminating all carbohydrates just going to a meat based diet that they find that those cravings and sort of pervasive thoughts about you know food sort of go away, which I think is very very fascinating as a way to get rid of that and I think you know is there a unique physiologic thing that happens? in our brain when we eat these carbohydrate rich foods or these, you know, or, or, or dairy perhaps that, that kind of triggers that thing and, and keeps it going. And the other thing that I think is very, very interesting is that I see the same people that, that do this and they say they get rid of these food cravings. They also notice that their cravings for other things like alcohol and cigarettes and other drugs also diminish, which I think is fascinating. And I think using that as a part of, you know, addiction recovery as a tool might be tremendously uh, powerful. 
That's really interesting. Um, it, it makes me wonder, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, why do cravings go away when we come off this roller coaster? And I think that, um, you know, if you're one, one of the things that, that causes mood swings and crashes in energy and anxiety and all these types of things is being on that carbohydrate and insulin roller coaster puts all, all of your other hormones, including your stress hormones, on a roller coaster. So if, if you get off that roller coaster, you may not feel like you need to reach for that glass of wine at 5 o'clock, you know, um, because you're calmer. You're, everything's more stable on the inside. So I think that's fascinating where you yeah, I, I kind of, I just kind of made up this phrase, nutritional security. And I think you know, you when you're when you're well nourished and you feel good and you don't have this sort of constant hunger, then then everything kind of gets settled down. And and I think you know some of those other behaviors become less uh, attractive to you. And 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 I just see that consistently. You know, you know, people three six months into a you know really low carb diet or or, or a zero carb carnivorous diet will say, I just don't feel like drinking anymore. And I used to drink every single night. And I think that's just really you know, really interesting. And I think there's, like I said, hopefully someone will, some smart researcher will pick that up and look at that and, and maybe find it, find it as a, as a way to, you know, use that as a, as a tool. Yeah. I love that phrase, nutritional security. And I can tell you, I think it's been a little over 30 days now. I've been zero carb now as an experiment for myself. And I've noticed a big improvement even over my very low carb ketogenic diet that I had been eating for a long time. So I, I, I agree with you. You're, you're perhaps developing a steak addiction. I have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually brings up a question kind of related to that too that I think has kind of been an interesting thought um, is, you know, you have the these folks who are following kind of a carnivore diet and I guess like appetite regulation and eating the right amount becomes very simplified because, you know, the rules are as simple as they get. You eat as much you know, fatty cuts of meat until you're full and then you stop and you don't do it again until you're hungry. And, you know, that message is pretty easy to adhere to. And then uh, the thing that I find interesting, though, is like if uh, someone is eating, let's say they're eating just meat and they feel full uh, and then they eat something that's a little sweet, all of a sudden they feel hungry and could go back and eat more meat. So it's like it almost more or less plays a trick on you as to like when you're actually full or not. Do you think that that's like a physiological response or like is that like a psychological response as well or maybe even a combination of both? It might be a combination, but it, it sounds pretty physiological to me. And, uh, I, you know, when you when you even when you smell something sweet, you can get a little bit of an insulin response. Your body is getting you ready for more food. And so, uh, and, and, you know, we're designed to take advantage of those opportunities, you know, as a survival mechanism. So it sounds pretty physiological to me. Yeah, if we can get, and I'm, I'm working on this, there's a guy, there's a gal named Molly Schuyler, who is a competitive eater. And she, oh, this yeah. is amazing, this is amazing, George. <laughs> so she, this is, she weighs about 125 pounds. She has eaten 22 pounds of meat in one sitting. Twenty twenty two pounds, <laughs> which is, I mean, that's baffling to me. But one of the things these competitive eaters will do is they will, in the middle of midst of their eating, they'll swig something sweet like a Coca-Cola to keep them going. And I think there may be that, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to her and see how that stimulates the appetite, because I think there is something definitely like that. And I think there's a lot of people that have noted that, that they, they're full, but then they can always eat that a little bit of extra dessert, you know, and give them a little t taste of something sweet. You know, I don't know if you guys are Monty Python fan, fans, but there was a movie, I think it was, oh, I can't remember, it was Life of Brian or something like that, where they had Mr. Creaso, the big fat guy, 
and he kept eating and eating and eating. <laughs> you know, he's at this dinner and he ate like until he got like a thousand pounds. He's really like ready to explode. And they, they gave him one more piece of chocolate and he was able to eat it and then he exploded. But, I mean, you know, it's just like that thing you can always find, a, you can always shove a little more sugar in there. And so I do think there is a logic response that allows us to, you know, prime the digestive mechanism, you know, whether you can trick so that you can eat those extra you know, if you're Molly Schuyler, that extra five pounds of meat or whatever by taking that sip of, sip of something sweet. So I, I do think the logic response there, and it'd be interesting. Hopefully we'll get her on here, you know, in the near future. Yeah, and, you know, it, it works both ways, too, because the first I had ever heard about that, even that mechanism, was uh, I think it was that show uh, Man vs. Food, where I forget who the host of that was, but you'd go around and do all these, like, you know, restaurant, like, challenges, like, you know, 64-ounce steak or world's biggest ice cream sundae, and and he was doing the, I think it was the ice cream Sunday one, and he was down to like just a little bit left. He could not get his like, it was almost like a like a gag reflex. He wouldn't, his body didn't want him to swallow even anymore because he had eaten so much of it. So he had him bring over like a, I think it was a plate of like crispy French fries, and he had some of that. And then after he ate that, he could finish the ice cream. So it was like, <laughs> it just tipped him back to being able to put more in. Thankfully, I don't think he exploded, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I tell you who knows the answer to this probably well is the people who work in the food industry. Yeah. They probably hacked that and figured it out to death. <laughs> that's, that's how they that's how they get us hooked on those, you know, those Pringles potato chips and whatever that, that make you keep eating and so I'm sure there's a physiologic and 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 certainly a brain response to that. So hey Georgia, we don't want to keep you too long. You've been gracious enough for to spend all this time with us. What do you got coming up on the schedule? I know I see you at Low Carb San Diego on the schedule. You've got some speaking stuff. Let people know where they can find you either in person person or virtually. Please check out diagnosisdiet.com. It's a wonderful resource. Uh, you can spend hours just reading the great writing she's put down there. I think it's wonderful. But let us know what else is going on with you. Oh, yeah, sure. And it's been great uh, uh, to talking with you both. Thanks for inviting me again. Um, so uh, I'll be actually at Keto Fest in New London, um, July 20th to 22nd in Connecticut. Um, that's put on by two keto dudes, um, Carl and Richard. And I'll be talking about ketogenic diets in the brain at that um, conference. And then a week later, uh, Low Carb San Diego. Um, and I'll be talking about um, processed foods and plant-based diets in the brain. Um, and I've got, uh, let's see, oh, I have, um, I'm actually going to be in Mexico uh, in October down in San Miguel de Allende talking about Alzheimer's prevention. Uh, so um, those are the next speaking things that I can think of off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, you, people can find me on my website, Diagnosis Diet, or uh, on Psychology Today. I write a lot of articles about brain and health for psychology today. And so um, I hope that if people have questions, I'm happy to answer them. And on social media, um, at GeorgiaEatMD on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter and Facebook, uh, GeorgiaEatMD. Um, I love to answer questions and talk with people. So um, I hope to hear from as many of you as are interested. Yeah, and the, and the spelling of that is just E-D-E for you guys that want to know how to spell E-D because there's this, it can be confusing for some people. But, uh, <laughs> That's sure, true. we'll put all those I, I think, in the show I think notes, Zach too. said he's going to be at Low Carb San Diego, so you guys oh, will yeah, be yeah. And then oh, I'm going to do my best to get down there at least one day and just kind of come down there and, you know, hopefully say hi to some people because there's a lot of people. We, I think several people we've had on the podcast are going to be yeah, there. I think no, I was going to be there yeah. and, and some other folks. And so it's it's, a great, it's awesome. a great conference. I highly recommend it. It's a great conference. 
Looking forward to it. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And are you are you at home right now or are you on the road right now? I'm at home. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, hopefully to see you live next month. And then yeah. uh, let us know if anything else new comes on. We can we can certainly get you back on down the road or so much. I, I just know there's going to be so much more fascinating stuff coming out that people want to talk about. I'm sure a lot of people are going to really enjoy this program. Oh, I, again, thanks so much. It's great. And I hope to meet you in person, Sean. Be wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, you'll enjoy a steak with, with, with something something else, perhaps. And I look forward to meeting you, Zach. I'm glad you're going to be there. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to catching up with both of you at Low Carb USA. Fantastic. All right. Have a great day. All right. Take care, Georgia. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967 that's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R-1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.